This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Be careful who you make your friends because they will define who you are. But don't exclude people from being your friend because who they are. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I'm Mungi. This week, my guest is Randy Stevens, educator and head of St. Timothy's School. St. Tim's happens to be the all-girls boarding school that I attended for high school and that I also credit with some of my sense of independence and self-confidence today. Randy, or Mr. Stevens as the girls know him, shares the effect his mother's death had on him and how her example shaped how he views gender roles today, as well as the strength he takes from difficult periods and what his students have taught him over the years. In this episode, we also discuss how educators can nurture critical thinking in our social media age where everything is fast and people want to be first. Last but not least, he highlights the importance of girls' education, something very near and dear to my heart. Here's our conversation. Well, Randy Stevens, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Well, I'm I'm excited to get an opportunity to chat with you. This is what, what an honor and uh, what a privilege. And roles reversed because, uh, you know, I see that you're in your office now. And I remember being in your office a few times when I was maybe in trouble. Um, and here we are now. I am the boss. Exactly. Although, you know, it's one of the things I think as an educator, sometimes you... Um, I think students and, and teachers, I think those roles oftentimes are reversed. But even when you are still a student, um, but maybe when you're the student, you don't appreciate that quite as much. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to talk about you in education, but I want to start by asking you, um, you know, my mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so what would you say is missing from your resume that you think people should know about you? Yeah, you know... That's, I think, a wonderful question uh, and one that I don't think, you know, we think about too often. I, I think one of the things is I work with students so often, everyone's so focused on their resume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I often say to students, a resume does not make a life. And uh, I think particularly as I get older, I try to reflect back on those milestones in my life of what's really kind of made me who I am. And very often... Um, the things on my resume were important stops, but it's kind of what happened there and the people there that have really shaped me in many ways and really formed kind of my thinking. I would say the thing that probably is missing from my resume that you would never see is, you know, I was raised by a single mother. Um, I lost my father when I was one year old and, um, you know, that had a very profound impact of who I became. I think it really impacted how I see women in general. Uh, certainly having a mother raising two kids by herself. You know, and she, she made great sacrifices. You know, she made the decision not to remarry and really focus on raising my sister myself and committed her life to that. And I, I think, you know, and that was not easy, particularly being in the South. I think being a single woman was not easy. And so I saw the sacrifices she made. I saw the challenges, particularly as a woman, that uh, she endured. Um, and that, 
really kind of in many ways kind of shaped in very profound ways who I became and how I see things, how I see gender roles, how, how I look at the world. But, you know, I think she really in many ways kind of um, helped me appreciate one that, you know, one, no one person is uh, self-made that, you know, we're a compilation of our life experiences and uh, very much of our life journey and those journeys who we who we choose to be our friends, who we decide to collect with us along our journey becomes very important. It was one of those paradoxes, I think, in some ways, because she would often say, uh, you know, be careful who you make your friends because they will define who you are, but don't exclude people from being your friend because who they are. And and I think that was a, a big lesson that I learned very early on, and I don't think that's something that, you know, you get from a resume, but uh, I think those are important lessons. You know, I think when we're younger, we very often think we know so much more than our parents, and uh, I often used to look at her and think, God, you know, what's this woman saying? <laughs> I used to always laugh about, you know, this is lecture 72, this is lecture 41, um, but there were all these, these little quotes uh, that she always had, and you know, I, I replay them now and think of them as this great wisdom. But, uh, you know, she ended up dying of cancer, rare form of cancer, when uh, I was 25. And so, you know, her loss was this incredible loss to me. And, uh, you know, I, I think to be an orphan, really, in, in some sense, when you're 25 years of age, kind of shapes your life in really profound ways. So, um you know, I think that that's certainly that's something that is not on a resume, but uh, has very profound impact on, on how one one's life comes into being and how you think about life and, and kind of shapes everything else that follows from it. I think I'm still that that quote about be careful who you make your friends. Um, I think that's probably something I'm still working on. And, and then the quote about, you know, no one being self-made, obviously, connects with me very deeply because of Ubuntu. And I, you know, when I read articles, it's like this self-made billionaire. I'm like, that is just literally not possible. Like, I just don't understand why we keep doing this. It does. You are not self-made. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I struggle with compliments, even when people do give me compliments. Although I live in a, a world where compliments are hard to come by lately. I think people are... <laughs> very good to tell you where you fell them versus how you look them up. But um, one of the things I would say if I was listening to my mother's playbill, uh, it'd probably be of lesson number 52. Uh, But, you know, one of the things she would say, you know, you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as some may say you are. And, you know, I always thought that was a great one, too, because at my highest highs, you always have to humble yourself to realize, you know, a lot of people worked hard to help you get where you are. And, you know, at your lowest lows, you have to always remember the incredible grace that God gives you and I'll help you get through it. And you kind of have to keep that faith and that perspective so that you don't kind of live in this disjointed world of, you know, going from highs and lows and always thinking that, the lows is always someone else's fault and the highs are always something that you somehow created on your own. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, you, you've been in education for a long time and you're, you know, the head of school at my boarding school, St. Timothy's. But how did you get into education? Like, did, you know, when you were a student yourself, did you think this was the path you were going to take? You know, absolutely not. Part of my challenge was, you know, in some ways I could never really quite figure out what I wanted to do. You know, there were times where I thought I wanted to go into ministry. I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. I loved history. Um, I thought I wanted to be an architecture. Um, so I wanted to do all these things. I, I probably had too many interests was part of my challenge. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I ended up in this job that I got to do all those things I loved. And that's what I was going to say. I was like, you kind of do all of this now. At, in yeah. I, and it's, you know, I, I think it's one of the other things I try to say to students because, uh, you know, I think so often we get so fixated on our destination and um, we forget about the journey. And, and so I think about my own journey that, you know, most of what's happened to me has happened because something that I really wanted didn't work out. And I was forced to, you know, choose plan B, C, and sometimes plan D. Um, but that other plan really kind of led to some new opportunities that I would have never thought about, never seen. And so, you know, when I look at the totality of my life, I could not have wished for a better life. But, uh, you know, there were some great disappointments along the way that things didn't work out the way I had hoped or had planned. You know, I, I think it's always good to have some idea, some sense of direction of where you would like to go, but not get too focused on a plan because, one, I think you can uh bury yourself in disappointments and and lose focus but otherwise you miss out on opportunities and unable to see those opportunities i mean it's one of the things that you know i'm fortunate to be married to one of the most optimistic individuals <laughs> i know so you know she always helps me uh see all the silver linings you know i think it's uh you know, one of the good things in life is, you know, you, you look for those opportunities to think about what, uh, you know, what good can come out of this moment. Because um, really suffering, um, you know, in the, the depths of the lows, very hard. I, you know, when my mother died when I was 25, I had just gone to Cornell. And, you know, the instincts for my grandparents, what I really needed to move back home and kind of give up this dream. My mother had really kind of, you know, she was the one who had really encouraged me to pursue uh, this opportunity at Cornell. And, you know, I was pretty much really on my own. And then I had been diagnosed uh, with a, uh, what was thought at the time as a terminal illness. And so very much alone. And, uh, you know, there, there was some great despair there. And, uh, you know, I went through a period of great depression and really having a hard time kind of making sense out of everything. But at that time, you know, I, I discovered these incredible friends and mentors that really kind of helped me see new possibilities. And it really kind of helped me get through a very challenging period in life. And, you know, in speaking about your mother, you said that she sort of 
shaped how you see gender roles and you are, you know, the head of an all girls boarding school. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you see gender roles and why is girls education so important to you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I saw, I saw so often how my mother's world seemed limited and restricted because nothing more than her gender and uh, who she was um, as a gender really defined so much of who she was. And, you know, the other challenge, I think, growing up in a Southern Baptist uh, church also kind of defined in different ways. And, you know, my mother had an incredible sense of humor. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that I, you know, really miss today. And, uh, and those kind of what I saw as uncomfortable situations, she always found ways of making jokes of it. But I think for me, I always thought there has to be a better way, a different way. And I think um, because of that, it's always... You know, I wanted to figure out a way of trying to help make it be a better way. Um, you know, at 25, I think mature enough to think, you know, God, this is going to be my life work to, to kind of make a commitment to try and have an impact here. Um, but I, I think that those seeds, I think with all of us, I think our, our younger development shapes us in ways that eventually it comes through and hopefully it's the good pieces that come through but uh, I think it's always had a profound uh, sense uh, you know for me of why education is very important and why trying to create equity and um, fairness is very important and uh, you know I, I Getting into working in an all-girls school really kind of happened in a very somewhat different way. And that happened because, you know, an opportunity to come to an all-girls school, I hadn't fully appreciated. I will say that, you know, I took a group of students to South Africa um, in, an all, in a co-ed school. And we had an opportunity to meet Walter Sisulu. And, you know, this was this incredible moment, and there was such, I felt, immaturity of, you know, there was so much bickering and, you know, who was in relationship with who, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I, I think it was kind of indicative of my sense of one of the limitations, I think, sometimes at this age, of, you know, how, how do you fit in? How do you... How do you navigate those peer pressures of social pressures of how do I fit into this environment and how how do I become accepted? And I think, you know, when I took girls back to South Africa three, four times later, you know, all that seems to dissipate in a single sex environment. And and they don't see their education as a competition that if one does well, the other somehow does less well. Um, but they support each other in very unique ways. And uh, I think there's something very unique and rich about that. And I always say to parents who are always worried about, you know, girls' schools not being the real world. And I, I think this time in one's life is a very formative period. And I think that if you... Um, are given the opportunity to really 
get comfortable in your own skin at this age, you will be able to be successful no matter where you go, what kind of environment you are. But I think if you have all this self-doubt sowed during this age, it goes with you for a very long time. And that really, I think, determines the difference between success and failure in so many ways. So I, I think that's why, to me, girls' school education is so important, particularly at this age, and uh, why I've been such a proponent of it, and uh, why every year I believe in it more and more. Yeah. I mean, I may not have been like a huge fan of it at the time, you know, when I was like a 15-year-old that <laughs> was with girls all the time, but uh, clearly it has shaped who I am today and made, I think, all the difference. Um, I wonder how you think, you know, educators can do their best to educate, but also nurture critical thinking, which I know is important at St. Tim's and in the IB in today's world, because there's so much misinformation and disinformation just like everywhere. Well, you know, I, I think that, as you well know, we have a course called Theory of Knowledge, which I, I teach, and it's something that I think is so critical. I think really encouraging students to look at other perspectives is so important. Um, you know, one of the, you know, key tenets of theory of knowledge is to force you to look at counter arguments to any argument you make mm -hmm. and to, you know, appreciate different perspectives. So one of the things that I've really tried to work on with our students in the last two years, because I think things have only gotten worse, is to one, try to force them to look at different places of where they get their news sources. And I had the students watch, uh, watch uh, Social Dilemma in class, and we really talked about the challenges of logarithms and mm -hmm. how, you know, just by reading an article, it means you're going to get more articles from that source. And so it really restricts your access to even information. And so you know, how do you force yourself to not go down rabbit holes um, and really kind of believe everything you read? Um, but, you know, we live in a time where people are very instant in their outrage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they're looking for justification to be outraged. And, and everyone wants to be the first one to talk to and, like, get it yeah. out and have, like, the first thing to say on a matter. So, like, you don't have time to read the whole article all of a sudden because you need to be yeah, out there. That, yeah, they've already got their hashtag form before they've even finished reading the article. So, you know, I think um, that piece is challenging, but I, I think it's made us as a society, as a world, you know, much less empathetic. In many ways, it's undermined the things that we claim we believe in and we value and we appreciate. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably more challenging than anything. So part of, you know, what we try to do at St. Timothy's, for example, is through theory of knowledge, is really trying to work with students and getting them to find alternative sources, to really force them to look at counter arguments to any argument they're making. So how do you look at those perspectives and learn from them and what kind of data are they using and how do you validate that? And even some of the you know, people that make arguments that you make, 
where do their funding come from? Yeah. And maybe some of their arguments aren't as strong or as valid. I, you know, I, I think you have to continue to leave yourself open to the possibility of changing your mind. Yeah. Um, and I think those things are all important. Maybe there should be a TOK for um, adults, you know, just to like refresh everyone and how to read. Because I think when I was in it, I had to, I think I had to argue the opposite of climate change. And that was like, just yeah. very confusing for me because I was like, what? What? Like, it was so hard to find things that I was like, okay, I'm going to use this. Like, I just was like, this is not, I don't know how to read in this way because I don't actually believe it. It's kind of tough to, you know, do it. Yeah. And I, I think the, the challenge too sometimes, and I think, you know, we live in a world where we're so flooded with information that we live in a binary world where everything is yes or no, true or false, and everything primarily, I think, is uh, to degrees. And so, um, you know, I think in most cases, it's not really about climate change. It's really about what you do about it. And, um, yeah. it, it, you know, it's even things like with recycling sometimes, you know, people who want to lecture me at times about recycling. Um, you know, you look at things that they do in their own practices and yet how incongruent they are. You know, they'll read an article and they have lots of data that they want to give you of what you should do. But, you know, how reflective are they of their own lives? And I think that's some of the work we all need to do is not help other people see where they can improve their lives, but also be reflective of where we can improve our own life. Yeah. And I, I think we live in a world where we all have opinions of how other people could make our lives better. Uh, I'm not sure we're always as good about reflecting on how we ourselves can help improve ourselves as well improve other people's lives. Well, yeah, it's like people arguing about, you know, I should be recycling the same way that they do, but then maybe they leave the tap on when they're brushing their teeth and it's like, okay, so you just wasted water for two minutes. Yeah. Or someone telling me that I need to have kids. And it's like, well, actually, our earth doesn't need more kids. So, like, why would you make me, someone who doesn't want to have kids, have kids when, like, my recycling isn't going to actually help, you know, reverse the effects of climate change if I also have a child? Like, it's, it's yeah, it's the extra thought process of just, I know best for you instead of just, you know, sort of thinking what you should be doing in your individual life. Right. And so, you know, if I if I really want to save the climate, I you know, there are lots of things that I could do to do things differently. And I've tried to do those things. Yeah. You know, I try as an educator, I also try to model those things here at school and try to influence things. But, you know, it's even things simple as like meatless Mondays. Uh, we tried here at school and, you know, there was outrage that, you know, people thought that they were being starved to death. <laughs> Uh, every Monday. And yet, you know, these are the same types of individuals that are very concerned about, you know, why aren't we recycling this piece of paper or that piece of paper? Uh, but yet they're outraged over Meatless Mondays. Um, Humans are funny. Yeah, we are. <laughs> no question about it. So how, you know, I think something that's important and that we should definitely discuss is, is is race. And I wonder how St. Timothy's has navigated from the all-white school that it was at its founding to where it is today and how sort of have conversations around race been, I don't know if the word is like encouraged, handled, you know, cultivated. Yeah. 
so I think that is a um, excellent question to raise. You know, St. Tim's is St. Timothy School is probably, you know, in terms of a school environment, is probably one of the most diverse independent schools today. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not something that we kind of backed into. I think it's something we intentionally went about doing. Um, and, and, you know, some of this was really formed during my time at Cornell. Um, Cornell was one of the most diverse communities I had ever been in. And I came to really value and appreciate how, how much we can learn from other people that have different life experiences. Um, I, I think it's important and it, I think sometimes it gets missed because I think you can look at someone and think because you know certain things about them, you know all there is to know about them. And I think we all have, we all carry an individual story. And I think we have to learn how to honor each person's story and not try to make things always based on certain characteristics. And I think that's, that's a very uh, careful thing to do in a community. And I think it's something we're trying to figure out how to do. We started uh, a group on campus called Narrative 4 of where we're trying to learn how to build trust to start having people share stories. And part of the process is you tell your story, I tell my story. And it starts with a prompt, like, you know, what is a time where you have and it could be something around race, you know, where your race has been an obstacle or a benefit. Uh, but it could be something like, when is one time that another person has inspired you? Um, so it's a prompt, but you spend about two minutes where you tell your story, uh, I tell my story. And then when you get back in a smaller group, but it's like six people in the smaller group, I will tell your story in the first person and you tell my story in the first person. Um, and it, it's very empowering to hear someone else tell your story. And then when you get in a larger group, you kind of talk about what your group learned together. But it also gets to kind of how you trust people and how much of your story you're willing to share. Um, and I think that becomes very important because as you talk about race at St. Timothy School, for example, you know, when you have truly diverse community like ours. Um, you know, you have, for example, students who are first generation from, say, the Caribbean island, whose parents do not want them talking about race. They feel mm -hmm. like, you know, I have made incredible sacrifice for you to get here to get an education. So the last thing I want you to do is get up caught talking about racial issues. Then you have students who come from very affluent areas who oftentimes talk about race as if they grew up in the inner city areas uh, of communities. You've got kids who actually grew up in the inner city areas whose parents really do not want them talking about race. So even within racial communities, you have you know these kind of challenging opportunities to talk about race. You know, our first student here that, you know, within the federal guidelines of living below the uh, poverty line was actually a Caucasian student. And that in itself caught people by surprise. Yeah. 
And so I think those kind of conversations turn, you know, race on its head at times um, of what people's assumptions are um, and how people think and talk about race and how, how you allow communities to segregate out, you know, certainly, you know, we have about a third which is Asian, Asian American, a third which is black, brown, and a third which is Caucasian. And within that context, you know, each of those communities are very uh, different types of communities. So a student who is, say, Asian American here at the school really thinks of themselves very differently than a student who is, say, from China. But equally, a student from Taiwan, a student from Hong Kong, and a student from mainland China is going to think of themselves very differently as well. Yeah. Um, following, you know, George Floyd, uh, needless to say, we were out of school because of COVID. So it was a little bit more of a challenge to have conversations here at school. But we did, and it had not been by design. In February, we had decided the book that we were going to read for all school read was Stamp. And so we had a conversation around Stamp. And I think that was a really good opportunity for us to look at and think about, you know, what it means to be anti-racist. And it was yeah. a very different lens to look through race, I think, within our school community um, and an opportunity to think about that. We had some conversations with uh, alumni um, and with our trustees and with some students. Um, I think our... Um, trustees and some of our alumni were kind of blown away with how thoughtful our students were mm -hmm. and, and the ease with which they were able to talk about race. Um, it's always amazing to me in the world we live in. Again, I think it's one of the damages of social media of how people spend more time debating um, the theories and the process versus how how we could use certain things as lenses to think of things differently and what good could come out of those a conversation about the lens and not necessarily whether the lens was a good lens or not. I mean, it's like... Any, or like nitpicking someone's individual. Yeah. Like allow them to have that experience and that can stand sort of next side by side yours, even if they're not exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there's no history that is, um, you know, all good and all bad. And looking at it in its contextualized existence through varied perspectives, I think is a healthy thing to do. You know, I think it's a sign of maturity to be able to look at, you know, your your warts as well as your strengths and to come to some common understanding of this is how we got where we are um, and an unwillingness to do that to kind of want to paint over all of that I mean it's kind of like you know it's probably a terrible analogy but you know it's like a house is falling down and all you want to do is just keep painting the walls to cover up the fact that the house is falling down you know, taking the plaster down and repairing the walls and looking at, well, you know, why is the concrete sinking and why is this happening? It doesn't mean that the builders, you know, 200 years ago need to be totally condemned for how it was built, but acknowledging that, you know, some of the foundation was not a solid foundation and, and acknowledging that and, and giving 
proper recognition to how the house was built and then restoring it seems to me a healthy way to go. And yeah. uh, I, I think that, um, you know, having different perspectives on that, and I think that's what education is really about. And, you know, going back to TOK, um, you know, I think having different people looking at those things become very valuable. And if you're unwilling to do that, I think it's dangerous. Yeah. And what would you say your students have taught you? You've had a lot of students over the years, so. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I'm so humbled by uh, the students I've had the privilege to work with. I think they've really taught me that anything is possible and uh, they give me great hope in my lowest moments and great despair. I always think about our students. Uh, you know, I, I look at all you've accomplished and, and what you're doing. I, I, you know, I think about, uh, you know, we had Aisha Ibrahim come back to speak about uh, what it means to be Muslim in America. And um, it was such a touching moment to kind of hear her perspective and um, to really learn from her, um, you know, of what her life had been and yet the incredible grace that she has. Um, you know, I think about uh, Mashid, for example, who was one of the first students we brought from Afghanistan. Um, to St. Timothy's School and uh, having this young woman with incredible potential, but who had kind of endured this incredible worn, torn area yeah. to come to the U.S. and really try to be given an opportunity. And, you know, she ended up graduating from Lafayette College. Um, you know, she went to the London School of Economics and got her master's. Uh, she and her parents have just immigrated to New Zealand. And just to see what education can do. I mean, it can truly transform lives. Uh, it gives me great hope to see um, how students take advantage of that, how it changes their, their lives uh, in incredible ways. Um, you know, I had the great fortune a couple of months ago to... Um, talk with Sarah Coleman, who was at St. Timothy's School. I don't know if you remember Sarah or not, but mm -hmm. uh, she only spent a year here with us, and uh, she's now become this incredible designer, and uh, she kind of repurposes, or I guess she calls it up-purposes. We're writing an article in our alumni magazine uh, about her. But, you know, she went, she, you know, she was sharing with me, you know, what... Uh, at a time when her life was very chaotic, you know, she really felt that she had stability here. And it kind of gave her a sense of creativity and encouragement that she was missing. And, you know, I think she talks about, you know, the sense of, at her previous school in a co-ed environment, of the sense of, you know, want, trying to fit in and what the cost of her mental health of what was required to fit in. And then being here and not having those pressures and being able to kind of be who she was. And then going off to college and having those old demons come back and, you know, now kind of being in a much healthier place. And, you know, she's taking recycled Louis Vuitton and Venti and things like that. I'll have to send you the article because it's just fascinating to see what she's done 
and how you know a place like this you know teachers in a community like this can kind of transform individual lives um, and you know you see those individuals and it, it makes you proud I, I think to to see what an institution like this can do and uh, you know it, it's what what gets me out of bed in the morning <laughs> Well, I, I think it's a great institution as well, but I obviously am biased. Um, so I want to close up by asking you, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Well, you know, we, we've touched on some of those things already. You know, I, for me personally, I, I worry about climate change. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, having just been in California and seeing what was going on north of us, seeing just the devastation of constant fire. I think that um, our planet is in crisis and um, I worry that the people who have the ability to do something about it Mm -hmm. really seem almost incapable of doing something about it. Um, I feel like that a lot of activists uh, spend a lot of time protesting but I'm not sure those protests translate into actionable items of changing things. I think, uh, you know, how politicized the press has become. I think, uh, you know, how we kind of become reduced to data. And I think because of logarithms, I think it underrepresents the reality. And yet it shapes so much of how we see humanity. I, you know, I, I'm very worried about our democracy. Um, you know, as, as I would say in theory of knowledge, you know, democracies are not the only form of government, and it's certainly one option. Uh, but I, I'm a big believer in democracies, I, I think, as a form of government. I, I find people spend more time trying to make institutions which are really not democratic institutions uh, more democratic, but yet they spend very little energy trying to make their governments and institutions that are supposed to be democratic um, engaging in the political process to make them democratic. So as frustrating as politics is, I, I mean, I think the, the cynics want you to give up on the political because that's how they control the process. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not opposed to protest, but I, I do think uh, maybe we need to engage a lot more and protest a little less um, to bring about real change. And, and then the last thing, you shouldn't have asked me my concerns because I probably sound a little bit more concerned than hopeful. <laughs> but uh, the other is I think just the overall xenophobia and racism and tribalism that I think we see in our own country today is really frightening. And it's not to suggest that it hasn't existed because I think, you know, all my life, I particularly growing up in the environments I've been in, have been very mindful of it always. But I think it's more grounded in hatred today than I've ever seen in recent times. And so that scares me the most. I, I think our total disregard for the dignity of human life is frightening to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, even when people make comments like, oh, this is not a third world country, I find very offensive um, because, you know, I, I don't think we as a world are divided up in worlds. I think we're all part of humanity, and I think this is a lot of what Ubuntu gets at. I think we're all 
linked together in a humanity and uh, if we all don't look after each other uh, then we all suffer and I, I think we all collectively have a responsibility to each other as human beings and I, I think nationalities are important we have cultures that are important I think we need to preserve our cultures our identities but we also have a larger culture, a larger responsibility, and that is uh, for greater humanity. And I think that we can't ever lose sight of that. Yeah. Okay, you have to give us a hope then. Well, you know, I, I, I increasingly read more, and I think reading gives you hope and, and real possibilities because I think that... Um, it gives you a vision of where we can go. And I think there's a lot out there that shows uh, opportunities for new possibilities. And, uh, you know, I, I think in our darkest moments is when we've been able to find new possibilities. And, you know, I, I think the students I work with give me hope every day. I, I, I don't think I would be able to have any... Um, belief in the future if I couldn't believe in our students. And so, you know, I see the incredible good work that they're doing and how inspiring they all are, and that gives me hope. And, you know, I'm a faithful person. I, my faith is very important to me. It's probably the hardest thing about COVID is not being able to go to church. You know, it certainly restores my soul every week, um, being able to go. Uh, there's always these incredible ministers and speakers and it's really a good cross-section of politics and religion at the National Cathedral and I value that because it kind of always helps me think differently and uh, I always think about all week what they've said and uh, you know in my own faith I think God has incredible grace and I think that grace gives me hope that you know tomorrow will be a better day. Yeah it will be it has to be. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. It was lovely to speak with you. Well, it was an honor and privilege. I am so impressed with what you're doing and uh, loved uh, Everyday Ubuntu. And, uh, you know, keep up your great work. I will try. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.